Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, presented by PolicyForum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We offer a huge range of short courses and degrees in the field of public policy and, best of all, you get to learn from some of the leading experts in the field, from energy to economics policy. We are sure that you've got something that will take your fancy. And if we've piqued your interest, go to crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study to find out more. Now, it's tax time in Australia and many people, especially younger Australians, will be eagerly awaiting a tax refund. But is Australia's tax system giving young people a fair go? At a recent tax summit at the Australian National University, experts have called for urgent tax reform in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, saying fiscal stimulus has helped guide Australia through the economic fallout of the pandemic so far, but the associated government debt will be a generational challenge and one the current tax system simply isn't capable of handling. Australia's savings tax system is one area in need of reform. Some forms of savings, like the family home or superannuation, are taxed lightly or subsidised, while others, like bank deposits, are taxed more heavily. Some savings income, such as bank interest or rental income, is taxed as personal income at an individual's marginal rate, while others have special arrangements such as stamp duties on property sales, dividend imputation for domestic shares, or the concessional tax regime for superannuation. Confused? Yeah, me too. And a recent report from Crawford School's Tax and Transfer Policy Institute suggests we're probably not alone. The report's authors found that the current system is inefficient, overly complex and inequitable. They say some elements favour older Australians but unfairly punish younger people and that the savings tax system is in need of a serious shake-up. So today we want to ask... 
Does Australia need to overhaul its savings tax system? And what can policymakers do to make the system simpler and more equitable? And I'm delighted to welcome two tax policy experts here with me in the studio. They are the co-authors of that report. Welcome back to Professor Robert Brunick. He is the director at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute here at Crawford. And he's one of Australia's leading public policy economists. Hello, Robert. Hi, Martin. Thanks. Also joining us is Kristen Sobeck. She is a senior research officer at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute. And prior to joining the Institute, she worked as an economist at the International Labour Organization from its headquarters in Geneva and country office in Argentina. Hello, Kristen. Hi, Martin. Many thanks to both of you for joining us today. You are part of a team of authors that includes your colleague, uh, Peter Varela, that looked more closely at Australia's tax system. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But earlier this week, and perhaps I'll put this to you, Robert, you held the 2020 COVID-19 National Tax Summit here at the ANU. And you said the conclusion to that was that Australia's current tax bases, and I quote you here, are not up to the job of paying for the things that we as a country want them to. Why is that? Before I answer that, Martin, I might just you, – you, in your introduction, you use the word tax reform. And I think it um, – as part of this conversation, maybe it's good for us just to define tax reform be, before we go any further. Uh, and often people use the word tax reform when they mean that we should pay more tax or we should pay less tax. But that's not how we're using the word tax reform. Here we're talking about the mix of tax that we pay. So really what we're talking about is how we pay tax, not how much we pay. And I think that people couldn't think that we should pay more tax or other people might think we should pay less tax. But even having either of those opinions, people can still have a conversation about not so much the amount, but about the mix and how we do it. So so my comments about the tax base are really about the tax mix. Um, Australia relies incredibly heavily on direct taxation, that is the taxation of economic activity. So we have very high personal income tax rates and very high corporate tax rates. I think a recent report put us in the top two in the OECD for those taxes. We don't rely much on indirect uh, taxes such as on consumption and we don't rely much on taxes such as land. Now, that combined with the many exceptions that we give to people in our system mean that what we have is we have fewer and fewer people in Australia who actually pay tax and a higher and higher burden of tax that's falling on that small group of people. As the population ages, people retire. They often have a lot of wealth in retirement, in housing. We don't tax that. They often have a, lot, have a lot of income from superannuation, which we mostly also don't tax. So who are, who's going to be paying the tax in the future? It's going to be the young people. It's going to be the working age people. And those people are going to be having to pay more and more tax because there are going to be fewer and fewer of them. And the cost of the tax system is going to go up as our population ages. So that's the sense in which I think our system is not adequate. So, Kristen, as I said there earlier this week, there was this 2020 COVID-19 National Tax Summit held here at ANU. What has actually changed in relation to taxation as a result of the coronavirus crisis? Well, I think Bob mentioned this earlier that the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute's been really advocating for tax reform for for quite a while. And in fact, the coronavirus has really just sparked or has, has really brought things forward to the forefront. You have we have a, we have a lot of debt that future generations are going to have to pay off. 
And while we needed tax reform before, we need it more than ever now. Um, I need to think of ways to, to, to sustainably reform the tax system such that it provides for those future generations and promotes economic growth. Robert, Australia and the Australian government has had no shortage of advice on how to change things for the better when it comes to tax. There have been plenty of reviews that have called for a shake-up of the system, including, of course, the Henry Tax Review of 2008, which made 138 recommendations, of which only a handful have actually been implemented. Why has Australia struggled so much to make lasting and significant change to its tax system? So, Kristen, uh, our favorite recommendation is Recommendation 134. Uh, does Martin know why that is? No, please know. tell me. Well, uh, Recommendation 134 was the recommendation to create TTPI. <laughs> so thanks to the Henry Review, that's why we're with you now. So that was one of the things that, that was, was one of the things that did get implemented. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. Somebody told me that about half of the re- the recommendations actually got implemented because in that 138, there were a lot of things that were relatively easy that were kind of technical fixes to administrative problems with the tax system. But it's true that there are many big ticket items uh, that were suggested that were not acted upon or that were acted upon and, and subsequently failed. Um, look, I think tax reform's hard. Uh, it, it takes – yesterday we – uh, in the in the National Tax Summit, we heard from Tom Barthold from the United States, who's um, from the Joint Committee on Taxation of the U.S. Congress, and you know he said it takes leadership, it takes a clear identification of a problem, and it takes a clear articulation of a goal. So one thing that's happened in Australia is we ha- often haven't had that combination of leadership, clearly identifiable problem, uh, and clear goal that we're moving towards. The other problem with tax reform is that it, it creates winners and losers. Uh, and, and that's kind of inevitable. So you're trying to make the system better and that means some people who haven't been paying any tax uh, are going to have to start paying more and some people who are paying tax maybe are going to pay less. Who's going to benefit from that? Well, mostly it's future Australians, right? So young people, uh, children, people who aren't even born yet. Uh, a better tax system is going to get us more economic growth and that economic growth is going to pay off in 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. And young people are going to have a better tax system when they grow up. The problem is those unborn people don't vote. Um, you know, and the, and the people who stand to, to lose are often the people who, who are going to be making the, who are, who are voting and who are making the decision. Uh, the other problem is that the winners tend to be, um, very large numbers of people who win in very small amounts, whereas the losers tend to be a small number of people but often who lose substantially. And they will make a tremendous amount of noise. And I think the mining tax is a really good example of that. Um, The mining tax was a really good proposal to turn Australia's mineral wealth into well-being for the general overall Australian population. Um, it was defeated by a very small group uh, who were very well funded and and very and vocal very vocal and extremely vocal and um, and and the problem with that is that uh, governments then don't want to go down that road again. Like once they've lost, they've had their fingers burned. They're not going to touch that again for twenty years, and and that is a problem for tax reform. So there's a way in which maybe you don't want to implement tax reform until you think you can actually do it because you can kind of poison the well. Uh, for, for quite some time if you fail. Because major substantial reform as in the, in the 
in the style proposed by the Henry Tax Review, does take political courage. And in fact, you know, Ken Henry himself was in the Financial Review today saying that uh, Australia's, quote, stupidity and economic, uh, economically, quote, illiterate failure to tax the mining boom properly has cost the country dear. Do you think what happened with the mining tax has sort of burnt the fingers of policymakers in terms of that kind of substantial big ticket reform that we need in this space? I think that it has. And I, I think the other thing that we've seen over the last 20 years is that we haven't really seen much of a willingness to take on big systemic reform. Instead, what we've seen is a lot of small piecemeal uh, tinkering with the system. And one of the downsides of doing that is that it adds to what is a very complex tax system uh, that we have evidenced by the vast number of people who use tax agents to file their tax returns. The problem with that complexity, you know, so it creates jobs for tax accountants, which may be a good thing or a bad thing, uh, you know, depending upon your view of that. But but the problem with that is that it generates a lot of unfairness because some people exploit that complexity uh, considerably to reduce their taxes. Other people don't exploit it. And you end up with people who are roughly in the same financial situation paying very different amounts of tax, which kind of flies in the face of, of what we think would be a fair system. Um, so, so I think we're, we're stuck in a kind of difficult spot where most of the minor changes that we make probably end up doing more harm than good, but we seem to have cold feet about uh, making major changes. I, I should say that if you look at the history of tax reform around the world, countries tend to engage in major systemic change really only under two sets of circumstances. One is uh, financial crisis. So if the country just uh, hits the wall, isn't bringing any revenue through their tax system anymore, and is faced with a lot of expenditure, that may happen to Australia. That may be how we get tax reform. Um, that may happen in 30 years. If iron ore prices go through the floor, it may happen in five years. Um, the other way countries get it is they get uh, bipartisan agreement about the fact that their system has a problem, and they get bipartisan leadership to move it forward. I would love to see Australia be proactive in tax reform instead of waiting till it hits the cliff. We've talked a lot about how Australian policymakers and politicians see the tax system, but what's your sense of how Australians see the tax system? I mean, in the the recent federal election, the uh, you know the coalition ran a very effective campaign warning about you know the kind of tax burden that the Labor Party was planning to, which they said the Labor Party was planning to introduce. What's your sense of how the the public view tax reform? I guess my sense is that for the most part, it's not something people think about very much, uh, except when it's election time. And I think what people often mean by tax reform is they often mean um, somebody else should pay more tax and I should pay less tax. And that's, again, you know, what I said before is that's not really what we're thinking about when we talk about tax reform. We're really thinking about a kind of fairer, better system. And, and I'm not sure that people completely understand um, how tax changes economic decision making. Uh, and I guess, you know, maybe one simple example is that, you know, just, just if you think about our system, um, there's, a, as I said before, there's a lot of complexity in our system. There's things we tax heavily. There's things we don't tax heavily. Uh, and just, you know, to step away and, and take a kind of toy example, imagine I said to you, school teachers aren't going to have to pay tax. So everybody else who's working is going to have to pay tax, but school teachers aren't going to 
have to pay tax. Some good news for school teachers there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so that that's good. So, first of all, that's going to mean one of two things. It's it's going to mean less tax. So, either Australia has to has to buy less stuff. We have to buy less healthcare and education, or other people who aren't school teachers are going to have to start paying more tax. Um, so that's kind of the first thing that happens with tax. The second thing that's probably going to happen is that um, it's going to suddenly become much more attractive to be a school teacher. So people who aren't school teachers are going to want to be school teachers. If you think a little bit further down the road, the third thing that might happen is schools might pay school teachers less because now they don't have to pay taxes so they can actually get away with paying them less money. And and this is the problem with tax is that when the government changes taxes, there are all kinds of responses that people make to that. And when I give the school teacher example, it seems kind of funny and and you think, oh, yeah, we wouldn't do that. But we do that about a whole bunch of things in our tax system. Um, and of course, if you're the school teacher who for 20 years hasn't been paying tax and now we suddenly say to you, oh, whoops, um, that was a mistake. That wasn't fair. We should we should make you pay taxes now. You can imagine the school teachers are going to make a lot of noise about not paying tax. So that's kind of a a parable about the tax system, if you will. All right. So let's move on to talk about the report that you uh, put out and particularly looking at some of the problems that you identified. Um, Australia's current savings tax system does not treat different forms of savings and investment equally. Some forms are taxed higher, such as bank loans, and some lower, such as superannuation. Kristen, why is this a problem? Uh, well, it's a problem if we tax things at different rates because, well, as Bob alluded to, taxes can change incentives. So if you're going to in, going into the supermarket and wanted to buy some fruit and there was a 50% tax on oranges and there wasn't a tax on apples, you'd probably buy some more apples. And when we think about savings, savings are actually quite similar. Uh, people can invest in lots of different types of savings. You can put your money in, in, in your bank account. You can invest in housing. You can put it in your superannuation account. And when these different savings instruments are taxed at different rates, the tax rate or the way in which these different assets are taxed are going to influence uh, where people decide to put their money. This can have long-term implications for the economic growth of Australia and also in, in general where a lot of Australians put their wealth. Should the family home be different? Is there something special about the family home? People often argue we shouldn't tax it at all because it's it's – it's this special thing. It's the house my children grew up in. It's. I mean, <laughs> I suppose it depends on who you ask. I think some of the complications that you see are actually figuring out how and when to tax it. Uh, so, for example, one thing that you could do is tax the value of the home every year. But that means that you have to have a valuation of the home every year. Uh, to some degree, Australia has that already in the form of, of, of land tax and council rates, but that's done quite differently across different states and territories. So you could think of another way to, to tax it would be when you tax the family home when the person sells it. But that's another possibility, which would be a fair bit easier. Um, but I guess it depends. Um, and it depends on the, the, the social and cultural values within a society. Uh, other places most certainly do tax the family home. For example, I believe in, in the U.S., and Bob, you're familiar with this as well, they, they do tax the family home when you sell it, but not the first $200,000. That's, that's right. So there's a, there's a, so you could give, you could give some special tax treatment to family home, but maybe not the incredibly special treatment that we currently give. Exactly. Um, it, indeed, what we see in the report is that housing is just taxed so concessionally as compared to other assets that there really is an overinvestment. Whereas, it would probably be more ideal uh, to tax things a bit more similarly. 
I was just going to ask you, I guess, so, so, you know, we've seen – one thing we've seen in Australia is that house prices have gone um, – have gone up very sharply and – you know, should we think that that's in some sense due to the tax system? Absolutely. <laughs> I would say most certainly because if you can invest in a home, well, if, if you look historically at the returns that Australia's had a property boom, people who actually own their homes have seen the value increase. I'm not even sure how much, lots, lots, lots <laughs> over the last 20 years or so. Um, so if your choice is to invest in, in, in interest in a savings account in, in your bank and earn one or two percent interest on, on a hundred dollars and then have to pay tax on that interest at your marginal personal income tax rate every single year. Or you can use your money and invest it in a different form of savings like housing and it won't be taxed when you sell it. Then most, most certainly, um, the, the savings arrangements for housing have certainly led to increased prices in part. Robert, in the report, you drew particular attention to the impact of the current tax system on young people. What is actually happening there? What what is the current what is the impact of the current tax system, and what's it going to look like going forward, particularly in light of the sort of fiscal measures that have been rolled out around the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, that's a that's a, a big question, Martin. Um, I might start just by relating it back to to housing as as Kristen was talking about. So one of the we we do think that housing prices uh, probably are higher because of the tax treatment of housing in Australia than they would otherwise be. Um that has made it somewhat uh, harder for young people to to get in the housing market which which is a, a a problem. But but maybe the deeper problem is a more long-term problem which is that what it does is it really creates a, a wedge between people whose parents own property and people who don't. Uh, if you're a young person, your parents own property, uh, eventually you're going to inherit that. And and if you get along well with your parents, you might even be able to tap into some of that collateral to, to, to buy your own home. But if your parents don't have that housing wealth, then you're not going to inherit anything um, and you can't tap into that collateral. And so I think there is a fear uh, that it could exacerbate intergenerational inequality. Um, I don't think that that's – I think that's more of a, a future concern, but it is a real concern and something that we should be worried about. Um, to come back to the current tax system today, uh, the response to the coronavirus has meant uh, a massive amount of government expenditure and um, – and that expenditure is necessary and the Australian government is doing exactly the right thing, which is the government should be spending money in a, in a downturn to help prop up the economy and, and maintain a minimum level of well-being for people. But um, we will have to pay that back. Uh, the, the good news about paying that back is that interest rates are very low and so we can probably afford to take on a lot of debt. Australia was in a very good financial situation going into the, the crisis with, with, with essentially a, a balanced budget or a nearly balanced budget. Um, and so we're in a much better position than than most other countries. I think that's in many ways the good news if you're if you're living in Australia. Um, and then you know, I, so as I said, the, the bad news for young people really will be that that in the future um, there are going to be difficult trade offs, and those trade offs will be if we want the same level of services that we currently get in Australia, but we're also paying this extra debt. That's going to mean higher taxes. And as I said before, the way our current tax system is structured, it's the young people who pay taxes. And so they're going to have to pay even more taxes. I also think that uh, the high corporate tax rate in Australia probably leads to less investment in Australia. Um, franking credits give uh, 
are, are essentially, as, as Ken Henry pointed out at our tax summit, a tariff on foreign investment. And I think that combination of, of that tariff on foreign investment and that high company tax probably does uh, create lower investment in Australia and fewer jobs. Um, so that also is going to fall most heavily on young people. How have we created a tax system that disproportionately benefits older Australians and disproportionately affects younger Australians. Is it something to do with the voter base that the political parties are trying to appeal to? Absolutely. Many of these benefits have snuck into the tax system over the last 20 or 25 years, and many of them have been targeted at particularly crucial voting groups um, viewed from the point of view of the political parties, often people in the kind of 55 to 65-year-old age, age range and, and middle-class people. Um, and that group is viewed as swing voters in between liberals and labor. Um, there might not be a lot of competition for the vote of young people sometimes. Um, and so policies aren't necessarily made to the benefit of young people. So for any young people listening to this, your advice would be speak out much more about this. My advice would be uh, get educated about tax and and speak out about this, right? And don't let people take your vote for granted. All right. Well, let's take a quick <laughs> break there, but we'll be back in just a minute to talk some more about what the ideal savings tax system for Australia might actually look like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still here with Kristen and Robert. Now I'd like to move on to talking about improving Australia's savings tax system and talk about some of the recommendations you made. In your report, one of the key recommendations you made is to move to a dual tax system. Robert, what exactly do you mean by this and how would it be different from current tax settings? So it would be quite different from current tax settings. So the way that savings taxation currently works is that we tax your savings income at your personal income rate. So if you're uh, making uh, over $180,000 and paying the top marginal tax rate of 47 cents and you earn a dollar of interest in the bank, then you pay 47 cents of tax. Uh, if you um, are retired and and you're on the age pension uh, and you make a dollar of savings interest in the bank, your income tax rate is zero, so you pay zero tax. So instead, what we would do is move to a system where we would charge people exactly the same tax rate. So both of those two people would would pay 10 cents uh, on that dollar. 
This is the system that's used in Scandinavia. People sometimes call this a Nordic system, so it has its or a scheduler system. So there's a personal income tax schedule, and then there's a savings tax schedule. And at first blush, this might seem uh, unfair, right? You, so you say, "Well, hang on, that person who's making one hundred eighty thousand dollars and they're paying forty seven cents now suddenly you're going to have them pay ten cents, and that and that pensioner who's making uh, who has uh, zero income tax rate, you're going to make them pay ten cents. That's unfair. But as it turns out. The way we currently tax uh, savings, once you take into account all the exemptions and all the exceptions, is actually regressive. So actually at the moment, people in the top income tax bracket are paying a lower tax rate on savings at the margin than people in the bottom tax bracket. So this flat system would actually move towards being more progressive. But it would also, for those people, surely for those people who are at the bottom end of those earnings, it would mean that they're going to be paying more tax, right? What you need to remember is that a lot of people who are paying a 0% marginal tax rate are not necessarily poor. Um, and, and so one of the things that will stop, for example, is it will stop people distributing money uh, through family trusts to children who aren't earning any income. So if I have a family trust and I distribute income to my child, I can distribute up to the tax-free threshold and they pay zero tax. This would change that. They would pay whatever the tax rate is. If it were 10%, they would pay 10% on the income. It wouldn't matter who you distributed it to. So what this would actually do is it would actually remove a tremendous amount of tax planning in the system. Kristen, in addition to this dual tax system, the report also calls for a range of other changes to the tax system, including the removal of stamp duties and replacing a dividend imputation with a flat tax rate. Can you tell us a little about those proposals and why they're important? Well, a dividend imputation, as as you mentioned at the beginning, Ken Henry uh, was cited in the, the Australian Financial Review as speaking out about the mining taxes, but also about the franking credits as, as really a tariff on foreign investors. And effectively, that is what the dividend imputation system is. And if we get rid of it, it, it goes back to my original example of, of apples and oranges. We ideally want to tax all forms of savings equally because then there's there aren't any distortions. People invest where they think they'll get the best return in line with their preferences for risk, liquidity, and and yes, how much how much return they'd like to make. Um, and and that's the direction that we think we should be going, uh, investing where people think they best fit rather than being directed by tax incentives. Uh, and removing dividend imputation uh, is one way, one, one way we can do this. With respect to, to stamp duty, what we see as stamp duty is, has repeatedly been recognized as one of the worst taxes, the most inefficient taxes by, by many, most, I think, I don't, I don't think anyone's actually in favor of, of stamp duty. It's hard um, to find anyone who wants to keep stamp duty. That's yeah, right. Yeah, except maybe the, the state governments that like the, uh, lots of revenue. <laughs> I think that might uh, be where it stops. Um, but stamp duty is an incredibly inefficient tax that a lot of economists and a lot of economists agree on this. And what we mean by inefficient, inefficient is 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 distortive. Um, taxes change people's behavior, and when a tax is efficient, it doesn't change people's behavior very much. Um, stamp duty. Well, if you're if you're a family and you want to downsize, or you're or you're a family and you want to upsize because your family is growing, 
there's this massive $50,000 charge that might make you think twice. Um, you might decide to, to renovate your home and extend it instead of moving. Uh, if you have another job in a different city, you might decide not to take that job because, again, when you have to pay this $50,000 or, or more or less, depending on where you happen to be, uh, to actually take it to, to buy a new home. So we find that it distorts people's decisions on, on, on many different margins in terms of the labor market, but also in terms of when and where they decide to, to move. Um, so that's one of the, the reasons why we think that uh, getting rid of this really inefficient tax is, is a good thing because we could ostensibly replace it with a, a far more efficient and, and fair tax. Um, and that would be something like land tax, a very broad-based land tax. In Australia, what we see is that land tax has a particular meaning, and many people associate land tax with investment properties. But when we think of a land tax, a broad-based land tax, we think of it as a, a tax applying to the value of land irrespective of, of, of its use, in a sense of irrespective of its, if it's an, an investment property or if it's an owner-occupied home, the home that you own and, and live in. And why this is good is because, well, we tend to see that people that live on plots of land <laughs> that are worth a lot, uh, tend, well, they have a lot of, they have a lot of wealth. Uh, and by taxing the value of that land, which has a lot of wealth, it's, it's more progressive than taxing on, on a transaction when you buy or sell your home. Um, so again, if we want to tax things, uh, similarly at similar rates, and we also want to tax people who have a bit more, a bit more, then a switch from stamp duty to land tax not only makes things less distortive, it changes people's behavior less, but it's also more fair. What would you do about people who are, um, so one of the objections to land tax that people sometimes will have is that there are uh, people in Australia who bought their houses in the 1980s or 1990s, often for a relatively modest amount of money. Um, those houses now are actually very close to city centers of, of Melbourne and Sydney and, and often worth uh, several million dollars. People living in them might um, actually be quite income poor. Uh, so they might be people who worked in working class jobs their whole life and, and didn't accumulate a lot of superannuation, um, perhaps retired before the superannuation system was was in place uh, and and are getting the age pension. Um, how would those people be able to afford to pay this annual land tax? What would you do about them? Well, I think uh, one example, there are a few ways you could attack that problem. One of the ways that the uh, ACT is is doing it is by saying that uh, the, you don't have to pay land tax un until uh, – until you've passed, um, and then when your estate is managed, the the land tax can be paid afterwards. Um, so that's one way you could solve this liquidity challenge, I'd say. All right. Well, I want to finish up uh, discussion today. It's been fascinating by just getting you to kind of summarize for any politicians or policymakers who might be listening to this. What are the few key steps? the simple steps that they could take now to make Australia's tax system more equitable? So the problem that we're trying to solve here is a problem of unfairness in the current system. And this unfairness is linked to the adequacy problem that we talked about at the beginning. So if there are some things that are taxed and some things that aren't taxed, and people respond to that by putting all their money into the things that are untaxed, 
then that threatens both fairness and adequacy. Um, so any steps that move towards removing the zero tax rates on certain kind of things and removing the heavy subsidies to certain kinds of savings and then reducing the heavy taxes on other kinds of savings will be good steps. So, so any steps that kind of harmonize tax rates on these various things. And we could go there in a variety of small steps. So at the moment, um, one thing that we do is we give, we give very generous tax concessions for people who put salary into superannuation. So for people at the top marginal tax rate uh, who are paying 47 cents on the dollar, if they put that dollar into superannuation instead, they only pay 15 cents. So that's a 32 cents gift that we're giving them. If you're on a, a low uh, income, um, that's that might be worth zero to you if you're if you're only paying 15 cents tax. Um, if you're on a zero rate, we actually give you the extra 15 cents back, so it ends up coming out as zero. But we're still giving a 32 cent gift to the to the wealthy people. The reason that we want to compensate people for putting their money into superannuation is because they're going to hold it for a long time. But if you look at actually who's getting this big benefit from this superannuation tax concession, it's by far and away wealthy people and older people. Now, it's not clear why we're compensating someone who's 60 years old for putting their money in super when they're only going to have to keep it in there for a few years before they can take it out. So really what we should be doing is, is channeling that concession more towards younger people and not so much towards older people. So a simple way to do that would be instead of taxing it at a 15-cent rate, you could just say, let's give a 10-cent deduction to everybody. So if you're at the 47-cent rate, you're going to pay 37 cents on super. If you're at the 32 rate, you're going to pay 22 cents on super. If you're at the 19-cent rate, you're going to pay 9 cents. That would be a much fairer concession, and it would be very progressive relative to the current concession that we have. Um, Another thing you could do is, is we could start – currently, we tax superannuation when it goes in. We tax superannuation when it accumulates. But once you retire, we don't tax superannuation. We could um, tax superannuation in the accumulation phase. And, and that would be a way to tax um, – that would be kind of a fairer, more equal tax treatment across all superannuation. Um, and then uh, um, we could – you know, as we've suggested, that instead of replacing dividend imputation, you could just have a flat tax rate on dividends. Uh, we currently offer a large capital gains discount to people. You could put that same capital gains discount on interest. That would be another thing you could do. Um, another thing that we might want to think about is currently we don't include owner-occupied housing in the asset test for the age pension. So people can be sitting on a tremendous amount of wealth and they um, still get the age pension from the government. Now, presumably the reason that people saved and the reason that people accumulated assets was for later in life and for a rainy day. Um, and we might uh, want people to participate in funding their retirement using some of that wealth that they've accumulated. And one way to do that would be to say that we're going to count at least a part of the family home in the, in the asset test for the age pension. And you could exempt the first $1 million of the family home, for example. And so you could do it in a way that um, is not going to affect uh, poorer age pensioners, but those age pensioners who have quite a bit of wealth, um, you could do that. And again, the way you would finance that is either through some um, deferral program uh, or if we actually had that kind of a system in place, I suspect that there would be private providers in the market who would provide products like reverse mortgages and stuff that people could use. So those are just some of the ideas that you could do. But all those things, again, the key idea is harmonizing the rates on different kinds of savings to remove this distortion, to remove this incentive for people to save money in one way instead of another way. 
And there are lots of good ideas there. But we talked earlier about some of the challenges that politicians have had in introducing substantial tax reform. And Robert, you talked about the sort of two conditions under which you do, countries do tend to get substantial tax reform. Are you in any way optimistic that some of the recommendations you've made might actually translate into change? Yeah, I am. First of all, you know, I think the main rallying cry here for me is fairness. And I think the report points out the ways in which our current system are are just grossly unfair. And I've lived in Australia for 22 years. One of the things that I'm struck by in this country is, is you know, the fair go in Australia, right? People really care about fairness. And I, I think if people realize how unfair our system is, that they can be motivated to act. So I'm, I'm actually pretty positive on that account. I'm also positive because what COVID-19 has shown us is that uh, we can come together uh, in a bipartisan way uh, across political divides to solve problems when when they exist and when they're pointed out to us. And so both of those things say to me that we should be optimistic. Well, nice to finish this on an optimistic note. So many thanks for your time, Kristen and Robert. It's been great chatting to you. Listeners, what did you think about today's episode? Do you agree with Bob and Kristen's ideas on changing our tax system? We want to know. Contact us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. Send us a good old-fashioned email at podcast at policyforum.net. Or better yet, you could join the pod squad. We're on Facebook as Policy Forum Pod, and your membership costs nothing. But it comes with heaps of perks. For example, you'll get early access to our Ask Policy Forum series. It's the podcast where you ask the questions. You can ask us just about anything from serious policy problems to the slightly left-field issues. We even discussed our panellists' preferences on cheese or chicken twisties recently. Personally, I have to say I quite like the spicy ones. So please don't hold back on any food-related questions or anything else you might want to know. We love chewing the fat over all of those. And before we let you go, don't forget to hit subscribe. That way you won't miss out on any future episodes. And you can find Policy Forum Pod on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. And while you're on it, you could even leave us a review. We're always keen to hear what you thought of the pod. And if you want to learn more about tax policy and how to improve it, and maybe even learn from Bob and Kristen, you might want to check out our Master of Public Policy. There's a range of specializations available, including economic policy, and you can find them all at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>